All right. So just as a reminder, again, there's no Bible study next week. No adult Bible study next week. Um, we are still contemplating what we're going to do with ESL and the kids and all those, all that kind of stuff. But there won't be any adult Bible study next week. Um, on your packet, if you got one when you came in, uh, on the very back, so you've got the, obviously the packet that we'll be filling out. The very back is uh, you've got the verses that we'll be covering tonight or we'll be talking about tonight. And then the very back is the bibliography. I have highlighted or bolded, boldened, emboldened, whatever you want to say. Um, two particular resources that were very helpful tonight. Remember, on Wednesday night is mostly us kind of working through material. Um, so it's not necessarily coming from the top of my head. Some of these are, but most of them are not. Um, and two resources that are particularly helpful, especially for tonight, J.I. Packer's Evangelism and the Sovereignty of God. Uh, it's a rather short book. J.I. Packer is not the quickest read that there is, but he is very good and thorough. Um, it's four chapters long, and it's about 120 pages in print. Um, not very long book, but it is very helpful to understand. Here's what we understand. Here's what the Bible teaches about God's sovereignty. But here's also what that means for us as we evangelize the lost. This is really important. So I think that's really good. And then Greg Gilbert's "What Is the Gospel?" is a free resource. We've actually got back there on the um, table in the back. It's a black. There you go. Shannon, hold it up. It's that little black book. It's what is it? A hundred pages, probably something like that. And they're small pages, too, so it's very easy to read. Um, that is very straightforward, and uh, I, I would commend that to you, and you can take one for free as you go out. If we run out, we'll order more. Um, so as we get started tonight, let's just review briefly what we've talked about. Remember, we said mankind is condemned in Adam. Paul says, in Adam, all die. So because Adam sinned, man was given the death penalty. Specifically, Adam and Eve were told, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die. They ate of it, and the death penalty was given to them. It was delayed, okay? It was a delayed death penalty, but it was a death penalty nonetheless. They were going to die. What Paul is arguing is that from Adam to up to the law was given, people still died, which proves that the death penalty was given to everybody, regardless of if they were there in the Garden of Eden or not. So what that means for us is that we are guilty in mere being, merely being conceived as human beings. We are guilty. The whole human gene pool has been poisoned, essentially, by Adam's sin. But, in addition to that, because we're condemned from birth, we then actually prove that that condemnation is right and just because we go on sinning. So you see your kids, you don't have to teach them to hit one another and steal things from each other, and you don't have to teach them to do those kinds of things. They do those automatically, and if you left them alone to be raised by wolves, they would, they would do all kinds of horrible, vile things, because they, and they, they wouldn't turn out to be, you know, Mother Teresa or whatever you want to say. They, would, they wouldn't turn out to be what we would think is upstanding citizens. They would be hellions, uh, evens. Um, so, uh, so we're corrupted, uh, and, and so what then we have to say about our salvation, about what it means to be saved, is that the Bible communicates this first and foremost as a past tense act. In other words, God, before the foundations of the world, saved us. But even after that, before I was ever born or ever conceived of, 2,000 years ago, Jesus died on the cross and suffered the wrath of God for my condemnation. What he was suffering on the cross was my condemnation, not his. He didn't earn that. He wasn't born into sin. I was. And he suffered my condemnation, the condemnation that I deserved, and absorbed the wrath of God that God had toward me for my sin. And so we talked about, uh, I think it was in week three or four, that Jesus fulfills this role uniquely. He's the only one that could do that. He was born both truly and fully God and truly and fully man in the same person. And only someone born under that, uh, in that uh, kind of way could ever fulfill what was required. He had to be man because he had to re 
fulfill what was required of mankind to fulfill. And he did, to the uttermost, he fulfilled the law. But then he also had to be God because he couldn't have my corrupt nature and be born in Adam. So um, he was uniquely qualified for that. But then what we said is that our salvation actually takes place in the here and now. So it's, it's right to say, I was saved. Before the foundation of the world, yes. Also, when Christ died on the cross, yes. I was saved. It's a past tense thing. But it's also true to say, I am saved. Now, in the here and now. Or maybe you might say, I am being saved. And we talked about new birth and what that means. Um, Jesus says that unless you are born again, you can't enter the kingdom of heaven. That is uh, in John chapter 3. And what we said is that new birth, it is very apparent, as Jesus' own words in John give uh, credence to, that our new birth is monergistic, meaning God works alone in that new birth, in giving us new birth. And um, He effectually calls us, um, and His calling is irresistible. It overcomes our natural deadness in our trespasses and sins and makes us alive. And at which point we have conversion, where we consciously are aware that I need salvation. This salvation that Jesus provided for me is something that I need. I am a sinner condemned rightfully, and Jesus is the only way that I can ever be saved. There is a point in the here and now where every Christian becomes aware of that fact. And, and so it's God opening our eyes in new birth, He says, replacing our heart of stone and giving us a heart of flesh. God does this. And at that point, we go, hey, wait a minute. I need that. And we understand our need for salvation and repent of our sins and faith comes in uh, as God's gift. Then what we also said in the last few weeks is the sinner, which we are, um, is justified by God's grace through his gift of faith that he puts in us. And then subsequently, we engage in what we call sanctification, where the Christian now, who has been born again, who has been converted, is now on the process of growth from now until he either dies or until Jesus comes back, whichever comes first. You're in that process of sanctification. And that process is a long and it's a winding road, and I've compared it to a you know, a stock, if you're ever on one of those stock apps and you, you, you look at the day, you're in the one day view, and the stock looks like look this, you know, and then if you zoom out to a week, it, it might kind of look a little less turbulent, and then if you zoom out to like the five-year thing, what you see in a good stock is that it, it, it kind of does this, it trends upward, right? So is the life of the Christian, that he or she deals with sin on a regular basis, but is growing by the Spirit's uh, dwelling in him to work out uh, wickedness and to work in the desire for all the things of God. And that is a process we engage in from now until Jesus comes back or until we die, whichever comes first. But what we also said about that is the ones that God has regenerated, given new birth, the ones that he has effectually called to salvation... He also gives the legs of endurance to run through the finish line. He is guaranteed their salvation in the end. And what we said about that salvation in the end was not only that we maintain confession of faith and belief in God through the end, but also that in that whole process, um, when we die, our bodies go into the grave and decay, And our souls go to be with the Lord immediately. But that's not the end of it. In the end, Christ comes back and reunites body and soul with the resurrection of the dead. So that our resurrection will look very much like Jesus' resurrection, maybe with a few more years in between. But essentially what we expect is to live in a new heavens and new earth with Christ as King in a resurrected, glorified body. So it is right to say, I was saved. It's right to say, I am being saved. And it's right to say, I will be saved. And that's kind of the picture of salvation. The whole picture of salvation. And what we should expect of our ultimate salvation is to live bodily, perfectly, under the reign of Christ as King. Amen, somebody. All right. Now, 
With all of that being said, we've talked a lot about, man, a lot of really complex stuff, right? Um, God foreordaining, God predestining, these topics in Scripture that are fraught with controversy and are not universally agreed upon in this room. I get it. Um, but they're really complex. And when you read things like Ephesians 1, and you read things like Acts 13, 48, you read these different verses that appear in Scripture, you go, man, that, how do I understand that? How do I unpack that? And, and what does that really mean for evangelism? That becomes the question. Is so then, what do I do? That, that seems to have a lot of bearing on what I practice in faith on a regular basis. So let's first take a look at what evangelism really is, what we mean when we say evangelism. And I want to do that by first talking about just the gospel proper. Shannon has that book. Hold it up again, Shannon. This book um, uh, by Greg Gilbert, who is a pastor in Louisville, Kentucky. It's called What is the Gospel? And it's helpful. And the way Greg Gilbert uh, lays it out that I think is very helpful is to help us first understand that the gospel is news. It is news. It's, it's, it's a, it's a it's, you know, extra, extra, read all about it. It is news. It is good news. And we have to understand that it's first, it's a message about God. So we have to understand that. If we're communicating the gospel to somebody, giving the good news to somebody, we have to understand, first and foremost, it's a message about God. That means who He is. That means what His character is like, what His standards are, His holiness, His, yes, His mercy and grace, but also His justice and, and all of His standards, what He requires of us, what He created us to be. You have to understand God, right? First. Second, you have to understand man. What man is now, in spite of what God created us to be. We are fallen. We are sinful. So we not only have to understand what God's righteous decrees are, but now we have to understand, and what He required of us, but now we have to understand how we're not there. We have fallen short of that. And we have to help people see that if we're sharing the gospel, that we're in a sinful state. Third, it's a message about Christ. How He uniquely fulfills our desires, our need for salvation. He does that and imparts that to us. And finally, there is a summons to a response of faith and repentance. So there is a, 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 an onus, if you will, put on you, the listener. If we're actually sharing the gospel, then those four things have to be there. That is the gospel. We have to understand who God is. We have to understand us in our sinful state. We have to understand who Christ is. And there has to be a summons. You have to understand you're responsible now because you have heard the gospel. You are responsible to respond to it. You can't just leave it open-ended. So that's the gospel properly. So then evangelism, you understand, is a work of communication in which Christians make themselves mouthpieces for God's news of mercy to sinners by presenting Christ Jesus in the power of the Holy Spirit and summoning the hearers to conversion. So, so understand your role in evangelism. If that's what the gospel is, it is news, good news. Then you, when you share the gospel, are a mouthpiece of that news. If you remember the newspaper boys that are standing on the street corner going extra, extra, and they're hitting you in the head with newspapers, wanting you to buy one as you walk by, that is what you are as an evangelist. When you engage in gospel conversations, hey, I'm telling you the news. Is, does the news change if you don't like it? Well, nowadays it kind of does. But, right, you can kind of tailor the news to however you want it. But that's not, properly speaking, what news actually is. News doesn't change based on your feelings. You know, it doesn't matter if you don't like that Christ is king or that, that God is the moral authority in the universe. It doesn't matter if you like that or not. That's true. This is what news is, right? You're telling them what the news is. So you become a mouthpiece for God's news. So let's look at a couple of these scriptures here. 1 Timothy 2.5. 
For there is one God and there is one mediator between God and men, the man Christ Jesus. There is Paul presenting the gospel. For, and then 1 Peter 3, 18. So a lot, some of this is, is gospel, is what, what we, we mean when we say the gospel. For Christ also suffered once for sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh and being made alive in the spirit. You see how they're, they're giving this gospel presentation? It is simply, this is a statement of fact. Uh, John 14, 6, Jesus said to them, I am the way and the truth and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. Wait, through Allah? Through uh, Joseph Smith? What about through all these others that... No, through me and me alone. Christ redeemed us, Galatians 3.13, Christ redeemed us from the curse of the law by becoming a curse for us, for it is written, Curses everyone who hangs on the tree. 1 Thessalonians 1.10, And to wait for His Son from heaven, whom He raised from the dead, Jesus, who delivers us from the wrath to come. You can see what they're doing. They're presenting the gospel. For to this end Christ died and lived again, that He might be Lord both of the dead and of the living. So all of these things are the disciples, the apostles, being mouthpieces for the gospel as they proclaim it to everyone who will listen. So then, the definition, this understanding of what the gospel is and what our role is, what it does, is it makes the Christian evangelist a herald and an ambassador. You're a herald and an ambassador making a public announcement on behalf of an authorized representative of Christ. While the power to save, we understand, lies only in the hands of God. So this means that evangelism is man's work, but the giving of faith is God's. You get it? So what we're saying is, this is true. We understand God's sovereignty We understand how he opens the eyes of the lost. We understand those things. But my role is a herald. I'm announcing news. And this is the means by which he calls sinners to repentance. I want to read some of these passages too. Ephesians 6, 19 and 20. And also for me, that words may be given to me in opening my mouth boldly to proclaim the mystery of the gospel for which I am an ambassador in chains, that I may declare it boldly as I ought to speak. 2 Corinthians 5, 19 and 20. That is in Christ God. In Christ, God was reconciling the world to himself, not counting their trespasses against them, and entrusting to us the message of reconciliation. Therefore, we are ambassadors for Christ. God making his appeal through us. You understand? You see what's happening there? What Paul says is happening? Does he say, you are the one, you manipulate and you conjole and you get confessions and things like that. That's your job. That's what you need to do. Present it craftily. I mean, if you, you really want to get some conversions, present it in a crafty way so that, you can, so that people will say yes and agree with you. Are you selling a pen at the doorstep or a vacuum cleaner? No. God is making his appeal to the sinner through you. You see what's happening there? How Paul understands evangelism? He doesn't see himself as having to manipulate anybody or sell anybody on anything. I'm telling you what is the truth, and God will make his appeal through me. And we're trusting that, that, that he's taking care of that. Okay? You understand. All right. So, well, let's look at another one. Um... 2 Timothy 1.11 For which I was appointed a preacher and apostle and teacher. Paul is saying his role in evangelizing is he was appointed to do this. 1 Timothy 2.7 For this I was appointed a preacher and an apostle, a teacher of the Gentiles in faith and truth. 1 Corinthians 1.21 For since in the wisdom of God the world did not know God through wisdom, it pleased God that through the folly of what we preach to save those who believe. You get it? So, here's what Paul is saying, and you need to wrap your mind around this. That the gospel message preached, spoken, proclaimed, is the means that God uses 
to convert sinners, to give them new birth. So we've talked about God's sovereignty in granting new birth. We've talked about God's sovereignty in opening people's eyes. Only He can do that. They can't, they can't muster up enough eye-opening juice to open their own eyes. It doesn't happen. They can't revive themselves. God has to do that. But what we're saying and what the Bible teaches about you saying the gospel message is that that is the means by which God opens their eyes. In Genesis 1.1, there was a means by which he created the world. And what was that? Spoken word. In the prophets, there was a means by which he brought about repentance in Israel. What was that? Spoken word of the prophets. He said, I will put my words in your mouth. You'll speak it, and they will repent, some of them. And some of them they will be blinded by. Okay. Then, in the New Testament, he provided salvation to repentant sinners. How? By who? But no, before then, in the Gospels, in the first four books of the, the New Testament, how did he provide salvation? This is a softball. It's one of the easy answers. Jesus, right? Okay, G G say Jesus with me. Jesus, all right. It's like y'all like the Sunday school kid who the, the guy asks, the Sunday school teacher asks, what's brown and fuzzy and has a fluffy tail and climbs in trees? And the kid says, I, I, I think it's a squirrel, but I'm going to say Jesus, <laughs> right? Jesus, okay, he provided, G John tells us Jesus is, in the beginning was the word, and the words with God. God incarnate, incarnated the Word, essentially, for us in Christ. Alright? He provided it for us. And now what is Paul saying? Now the Word in my mouth, in the Gospel, is the means, again, by which He wakes sinners up from the grave and gives them new birth. It's the conduit that He operates through. So that's what you are. You're a herald. You're an ambassador of this gospel message. All right. Um, so having the goal of conversion uh, in our minds, we want, in other words, we want sinners to come to repentance, and that is our goal. So when we're thinking about sharing the gospel, our desire is for them to come to repentance, and having that goal of conversion is not calling into question the truth that it is God who converts and saves. It's simply saying that the conversion and salvation of others out of His genuine love for them should be the Christian's objective. So in other words, our desire, we, we understand that God is sovereign over all this, that He opens eyes and changes hearts and gives new hearts, and, and he, He's doing that out of His sovereignty, sovereignty and control. That doesn't mean it's contradictory for us to desire the repentance of the person that we're speaking to. Or even our friends, when we're in our bedrooms at night and we're thinking about it, or we've prayed in here many times, for people in our families or friends that we know or neighbors that are lost, we want the Lord to open their eyes. Because just as it is the means that God uses to wake sinners up from their stupor, from their death, by us preaching the gospel, so he has ordained it also that the prayers of the saints are the means by which he acts. We see that time and time again in Scripture. And I'm telling you right now, like I, I'm, I obviously come from a Reformed background, and I'm, I make no apologies about that, and I think the Scriptures say that clearly, and I understand not everybody is on the same page there, and we're okay that, with that. But what I would say is there's a lot of people that as we think about the sovereignty of God have a real struggle with prayer. If God is sovereign over all this, if He has determined before the foundation of the world all these things that take place, what is the purpose of me praying? Right? But the Bible says very plainly that the purpose behind prayer is that He has ordained that that's the means by which He acts. He's not restrained to act only in accordance to your prayers. And sometimes you pray things that He says, no, not doing that. 
But you'll get twisted up. If you think your prayers change God's mind or whatever, you inform Him of something He doesn't already know, you're going to get really twisted up in Romans 8, especially in about 26 and 27, when He says, and, and we don't know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and He who searches the mind knows what the will of the Spirit is and answers according to that. So he, wait a second, so you're telling me I don't know what to pray for, but I utter prayers. And that's okay, because the Holy Spirit intercepts those prayers and, and prays in, for me with groanings too deep for words and goes, nah, don't listen to that, let's pray according to your will. And then, and, and God, who knows what his will is, listens to the Spirit and acts on, what? Exactly. Well, why is that? It's because your prayer is the means by which he acts. We see in Revelation the prayers of the saints who are crying out from under the altar because they've been, they've been beheaded for their testimony. They say, how long, O Lord? And we see later that the prayers of the saints fill up a bowl of smoke that he then pours out in judgment on the world. Does he need their prayers to exercise his judgment? No. But that's what he uses. Okay? Okay. You don't have to understand how it all works to do it. 1 Corinthians 9, 19-22, For though I am free from all, I made myself a servant to all, that I might win more of them. You see what Paul's intention is? I want their conversion. He says, To the Jews I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those in, is he under the law? No. He says the law is anathema. You can't adhere to the law and think you can be saved? Yet I, who know the freedom that I have in Christ, I'll put myself under the law because it means nothing if it means that I can talk to the Jews and I can win Jews. His desire is to see them converted to the Jews. I became as a Jew in order to win Jews. To those under the law, I became as one under the law, though I might, though not being myself under the law, that I might win those under the law. To those outside the law, I became as one outside the law, not being outside the law of God, but under the law of Christ, that I might win those outside the law. To the weak, I became weak, that I might win the weak. I have become all things to all people, that by all means I might save some. What is his desire? To see them come to salvation. He doesn't know who the people are that God has ordained. He doesn't know any of that. We don't know any of that. So we broadly share the gospel and we pray for the salvation of every single person that we come in contact with. That should be the desire of the Christian. Um, now, so with that being said, that's what evangelism is. Let's think here for just a second about the necessity of evangelism. So let's suppose as we have said for the last 11 weeks, now going into week 12, suppose that all things do in fact happen under the direct dominion of God by His sovereign decree. All these things take place. And that God has already fixed by the future by His decree and has resolved whom He will save and whom He will not. Does this render evangelism unnecessary since God has already determined his elect? This is the question. This is the hard question that we have to deal with when it comes to evangelism. Does, does that mean it, it just doesn't matter since he's already determined it? Well, we've got several answers that have been proposed. There is, um, because of the doctrine of election, there are groups of people, one called hyper-Calvinists, typically referred to as hyper-Calvinists, that have erred, and some heretically so, arguing that evangelism is superfluous. Well, see, since God has already decreed these things, and evangelism is absolutely meaningless. But then others, perhaps reacting to the hyper-Calvinists, have erred the opposite direction, arguing against God's sovereignty because of the necessity of evangelism. Well, I know evangelism is necessary, so therefore what you're saying must be absolutely false. Well, both groups have just ignored a whole swath of Scripture right, in the process. Hold on one second. So, uh, both err in opposite directions. We don't have to try to resolve one set of Scriptures and, and adhere to another set of Scriptures because we just commit errors in either way, right? What we want to do is take into account all the Scripture and say, this is all true. 
Now, it doesn't all have to fit in my mind. I don't have to be able to put all the puzzle pieces together. But it's all true. Okay. So, the truth of God's sovereignty, His election, His foreordination of His people as revealed in His Word, is not, therefore, mutually exclusive with any other doctrine likewise stated in His Word. And what I mean by that is that you can't just say, well, I pick these pet verses and therefore, eh, I don't know what to do with those. And you can't just pick these pet verses over here and go, therefore, that's not true. No, all, all of them have to be true at once. So, when we read, like Ephesians um, 1, 4-6, let's do that. Even as He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that we should be holy and blameless before Him in love, He predestined us for adoption to Himself as sons through Jesus Christ, according to the purpose of His will, to the praise of His glorious grace with which He has blessed us in the beloved. So Paul's saying there, this is how salvation came about. He chose us in Him before the foundation of the world, that is in Christ, before the foundation of the world. Before the foundation of the world is meant to say, before you did anything, thought anything, ever would have chosen anything, before you were ever even a twinkle in the eye of your parents, before any of that ever happened. He determined these things before the foundation of the world. He predestined us for adoption. We can't just strike that out. It says it plainly. But if it doesn't say it plainly enough there, look at Acts 13, 48. This is Paul preaching to the Gentiles. Or you might, some, some might say erroneously and crazily in Ephesians uh, 1, 4-6 that, you know, hey, that, he's talking about Jews there. Well, look at the verse next to it. I missed one. Ephesians 1, 13. In him you also, when you heard the word of truth, the gospel of salvation, and believed in him, we're sealed with the promised Holy Spirit. So he, he's saying back here in 4, he predestined all this to take place. And then, at some point in time, you heard and you came forward, which is exactly how we've laid out salvation in this study. But then, if it doesn't state it plainly enough there, Acts 13, 48, Paul's preaching to the Gentiles. And when the Gentiles heard this, they began rejoicing and glorifying the word of the Lord. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed. How did they believe? They were appointed to eternal life. And as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, came to faith. You don't have to strike those out. Embrace those. That's fantastic. That's wonderful. And I'll tell you why in just a second. But in other words, the doctrines aren't mutually exclusive. So the sovereignty of God in grace, you understand, it doesn't affect anything that we have said about the nature and duty of evangelism. Because God foreordains things, that doesn't affect anything about what I'm telling people. What I preach, repent and believe. You hear me on Sunday after Sunday after Sunday with a direct appeal to people who do not believe. And my earnest desire is to see them repent of their sins and trust in Christ for salvation. That is my desire every time I say it. I want that to happen. And so my understanding and the Scripture's explanation of God ordaining these things before the foundation of the world, as many as were appointed to eternal life believed, my understanding of that doctrine doesn't change anything about what I'm presenting to people. Therefore, repent. And the ones that are going to repent, yes, God has opened their eyes. I don't know who that is. So I'm just going to tell everybody. But you better believe it, if I was ever given a list, we would have some targeted visitation, wouldn't we? I mean, if he, said, if he gave us an address list in Tuscaloosa, wouldn't we be showing up to the doorsteps of these people that were on the list? But we don't. God hasn't given us that. So we put our appeal out broadly to everyone. Because we're going to hit somebody. Um, so it doesn't change anything. God has kept the identity just because uh, the things that God is pleased to keep to himself, the number uh, and identity of the elect, for, uh, for instance, and, and when and how he purposes to convert those in the elect, they have no bearing on, on my duty, my responsibility that's given to me in Scripture. It, it does not affect, one, the necessity of evangelism. Paul says uh, 
in Romans 13 and 14, for everyone who calls on the name of the Lord will be saved. How then will they call on him whom they have not believed? Um, and how are they to believe in, in, whom, in him whom they have not, never heard? And how are they to hear without someone preaching? That is the means that he has used to wake them up, to revive them. Uh, it does not affect the urgency of evangelism. Uh, Jesus says in Luke 13, 3 and 5, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. 13, 5, No, I tell you, but unless you repent, you will all likewise perish. There's an urgency to it. You need to repent now. Um, it does not affect the genuineness of the call to repentance. So, some people would say, well, you don't really mean it. I mean, well, God doesn't really mean it. Repent if he already has his elect. No, in fact, he will actually say in the New Testament that Jesus, Jesus, for instance, saying, asking, answering the question, why do you speak in parables? He says, so in hearing, they will not hear. To you it has been given, disciples. But I speak in parables so that in hearing my parables, they won't hear. What? He tells Isaiah the same thing. He sends Isaiah out. Yeah. Speak to these people so that I can harden their heart. Twist that one around in your mind for a second. Yeah, so sometimes the, the preaching hardens the heart of a hearer. It does. And it causes them to run the opposite direction. And that is God's intention. But other times it wakes them up. So it's genuine, the call. It does not affect the responsibility of the sinner. In other words, as you hear this, you are responsible. Look at John 3, 19. And this is the judgment. The light has come into the world and people loved the darkness rather than the light because their works were evil. In other words, the gospel is shining a light and what do the moths do? They flee to the light. What do the cockroaches do? They run. Jesus is shining a light and proving your condemnation is worthy. It's just. Look at what happened when, you, when I shine the light. If you weren't guilty in Adam, you would respond like a moth to this flame. Because you are guilty and because your heart is hard, you ran the opposite direction. Your condemnation is just. Okay, that's a hard reality to live up to, but it's true. And the sinner is responsible for it. The sovereignty of God in grace, you understand, gives us our only hope of success in evangelism. I cannot say this clearly enough. The only reason evangelism, something as, pardon the, the word, stupid as me saying words into a crowd. The only reason that has even the hope of success is because of God's sovereign grace. That's it. Because let's understand, remember what we've said already. Fallen man has a blinded mind, so he's unable to grasp spiritual truth due to his own sinful disposition and, what we're also told in Scripture, Satan's activity. Right? He's blinded. He's dead in his trespasses and sins. He has no hope. He is estranged from God. He is under the wrath of God. He has absolutely no hope in this world. The only reason... The gospel being preached actually can revive them is because of God's activity, because of His sovereign decree, because of His grace, because of His foreordination. They're blinded in mind not because, only because of their birth, but because of Satan who blinds. I want to move through this because we're getting close on time. The scriptures are there for you. So you have to understand two things, and I think these are fundamental. You have to understand these. First, our obedience to the task of evangelism is commanded by God's Word. 
if nothing else were true, if, if we said, look, I understand God's sovereignty, I still don't understand why I need to evangelize, if all of that, if you just couldn't get over that, you would have to come back to the Word and say you're commanded to do it. Yes? Matthew 28, 18 to 20, you know very well. All authority in heaven and earth has been given to me. Go, therefore, make disciples of all nations, baptizing them in the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, teaching them to observe all that I've commanded you. And behold, I'm with you always, even to the end of the age. All right. Um, 1 Corinthians 9, 16, I preach the gospel that gives me no ground for boasting, for necessity is laid upon me. There's a command that I've got to do. Woe to me if I do not preach the gospel. That's what he says. I'm in sin if I don't. 2 Timothy 4, 5. As for you, always be sober-minded. Endure suffering. Do the work of an evangelist. Fulfill your ministry. There's a command in Scripture. You have to do this. However, read the Old Testament. Commands are meaningless if we don't have a heart to obey them. Yes? God had to give us a heart in order to obey. So the second thing that you have to understand, this is fundamental to evangelism. Please wrap your mind around this. Our obedience to the task of evangelism is enabled by God's Spirit. It's enabled by God's Spirit. You see? Him putting commands on us, go share the gospel, does absolutely nothing for our sharing the gospel unless He enables me to do it by the power of His Spirit. So, Romans 15, 16-19. To be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the, of the gospel of God, so that the offering of the Gentiles may be acceptable, sanctified by the Holy Spirit. In Christ Jesus, then, I have reason to be proud of my work for God. For I will not venture to speak of anything except what Christ has accomplished through me to bring the Gentiles to obedience by word and deed, by the power of signs and wonders, by the power of the Spirit of God, so that from Jerusalem and all the way around to Illyricum, I have fulfilled the ministry of the gospel of Christ. You understand what he's saying there? Look at the very beginning. Uh, to be a minister of Christ Jesus to the Gentiles in the priestly service of the gospel of God, sanctified by the Holy Spirit, he says. So these things he's saying are empowered by the Holy Spirit. His works, his deeds, his powers, his signs and wonders, all of those are by the power of the Spirit of God, he says in verse 19. Ephesians 3, 7, of this gospel, I was made a minister according to the gift of God's grace, which was given by the working of his power. 2 Timothy 1, 8, therefore do not be ashamed of the testimony about our Lord, nor of me a prisoner, but share in suffering for the gospel by the power of God. So in other words, there's people that will ask, well, if God has decreed all these things, why don't we just pack up all the missionaries and send them home? Who cares? It's going to be done. He's going to do all this. You understand that the missionaries are on the mission field by the same sovereign decree of God. You think they're there by their own volition? You think they're on the mission field facing death, preaching the gospel? Because they just decided that was a better choice for their life? No. The same sovereign decree that wakes the dead up and gives them life is the same sovereign decree that sends the missionary to the mission field. So you're saying, well, why don't you just pack up all the missionaries and send them home? Well, if it was left up to them, they probably would. But it's not. The same spirit that is at work in giving new birth to the previously unbelieving, now believing sinner. It's the same spirit that's in work, at work in the missionary to preach the gospel to the lost. So, so what does that mean then for a Christian, a so-called Christian, who does not share the gospel? Well, we see, one, it's disobedient, the scripture. But second, it does raise the question, is the Spirit really at work in you if you don't have a desire to share the gospel with anyone? 
are you sure the Spirit is at work in there? Because what the Word tells us is that we are heralds and ambassadors. He has made us that. And if we're that, our desire is to share the news. So if we don't have a desire to share the news with the unbelieving and a desire to see them come to salvation, if we don't have a desire to disciple people, if you can look at your entire life as a Christian and say, I, you know, I don't know if I've discipled anyone. It does raise a question. I'm not saying it's the definitive answer. But it should make you think. If I don't have a desire to share this good news that has supposedly radically changed my life and brought me from death to life, transferred me from the domain of darkness into the kingdom of his beloved son, I don't have a desire to share that with anyone. Am I saved? Really? Have I actually been born again? Questions? James. Yeah, he said, go. Yeah, 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 absolutely, absolutely. Timothy. Christ's righteousness. Yeah. Yeah. That's right. We're going to talk a lot about that this Sunday. Anything else? Questions? That's right. Yeah. 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 That's right. He said, our life has to back up the message that we preach. He once knew a man who said he was a preacher, but he thinks he was a sailor because he sure spoke like one. Yeah. Our life has to back it up. Yeah. Questions? Yeah. Yeah. Raise him in the fear and admonition of the Lord. Disciple our children. Right. Questions? Oh, there are some. Okay, here's the thing. No Bible study next week. The week after that is the last week of this. So we're going to talk about, pretty briefly, as briefly as you've ever heard me speak, (laughs) (laughs) knowing that I can't say my name in briefly, all right? I'm going to talk briefly about how all this has a bearing on what we do as a church, so as an example, um, th- this is one that I've answered a lot or we've talked about a lot. Some have asked me a lot. Altar calls. Right? Why there's not one? Um, because of what, we, what I believe about salvation. Okay? And so we're going to deal with that. We're going to deal with Charles Finney, which is where the altar call originated, by the way. Uh, I believe to be a heretic of the 1800s who created it out of whole cloth. No one in the history of the church had ever even heard of an altar call until Charles Finney came in and decided he wanted to reproduce the First Great Awakening. We're going to talk briefly about that. And then I'm going to open the floor to questions. Okay? I'll come up with my own questions. All right? I'm going to have a list of them that I'm just going to answer if y'all don't start asking questions. Okay? So I would rather answer the questions that you have all right, we're not getting snarky, right? Just before you even walk in the door, just take the snarky filter and turn it up to like 11, all right? Just crank it up.
filter out all the snark and just ask the question in a spirit of peaceability, all right? That's where we're at, okay? That's what we're doing. But we're gonna, I'm going to hopefully respond to questions that you might have about this. If that's technicalities on Scripture, then we'll go there. I may not have the answer for it, but we can go there, okay? Don't you embarrass me, all right? All right? You think we're getting out of here at 7 because you're going to stop me? No, uh we're not, <laughs> nope, not happening. All right, we're going we're gonna to talk about it, okay? So just know that. So you have the next two weeks to just jot down some questions on paper so that you can ask them, all right? And if it takes the following week to answer them all, we'll do that as well, okay? So if you got more, then we'll come in the next week with questions. So let's pray to be dismissed, and you've got two weeks. The clock starts now to think. Heavenly Father, we are grateful for a time to look through your word and to think about the call to evangelism that you have given to us. Not call, command to evangelism, but also the fact that you have enabled us by your Spirit to preach the word. And and we often think so many times as we're sitting down with our friends or our family members, we think maybe about what they're going to say about us or the way that they're going to think about us. Um... And we have a fear of man. That's a sin. We confess that. We pray for forgiveness, and we pray that you would move us away from that. Grow us and sanctify us in your word and and help us to move over that, to preach the gospel to someone who's going to hell. That maybe, just maybe, through the preaching of the gospel, you might open their eyes, and we pray that you would. We know there are wives in this room who have husbands, that are not believing. We know there are husbands who have wives in this room that are not believing. We know that there are friends who have friends that are unbelieving. We know there are neighbors who have other neighbors who are not believing. And so we pray for all of them. And we pray that you would open their eyes. And we pray you would give us the wherewithal, the gumption, the boldness to share with them and to repent of our fear of man. We also think sometimes about the urgency and Maybe we want it to be quicker than what it is. And we're building this relationship and we're slowly talking and we feel like it's not moving fast enough. Would you allow us to, be, to rest in your, in your patience and in your timing and to know that our sharing, our being a representative, the little things we say, the prayers that we pray, the times where we have maybe a good long conversation, the times we're ignored and we have to wait, and all of those things that we just wrestle with and we are frustrated by. Forgive us for doubting your timing, doubting your sovereignty, and allow us to just be patient and just be faithful when we're in those conversations. Lord, these and so many more are concerns deeply held within us, and, and, and so we pray that you would just allow us to rest in your word, to know that it's true, to trust it's working, and to just be faithful representatives of you, heralds, ambassadors of you in the town square. And may our lives actually prove that we believe this gospel to be true. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.